0: Hello everyone, my name is uh, Vala Afshar, Chief Digital Evangelist for Salesforce and your co-host on Disrupt TV. We welcome you to join us uh, and follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Please send your questions to Ray and I and our distinguished guests using hashtag #DisruptTV. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong, best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business, CEO and co-founder of Constellation Research, uh, columnist for Forbes, ZDNet, Harvard Business Review, and most importantly, a great guy to follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray, to the Shrub TV.
1: Hey, thanks a lot. And awesome co host, as you all heard, Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce. Vala is not only one of the top CIO influencers, he's also one of the top CMO influencers, author, influencer in HuffPo, Inc. magazine, and other publications. But more importantly, we have an awesome guest today. Who do we have?
0: We do really have. An unbelievable guest, in fact, three unbelievable guests, but we're w- really delighted to welcome Chris Michael, entrepreneur, investor, and amazing photographer to Disrupt TV. Chris is—he uh, manages Knowledge uh, Ventures, an early-stage venture capital firm. He founded in 2008. Uh, Chris founded Military.com, an online pool for service members, veterans, and their families. Military.com was one of the first online social networks to rescale in the U.S., In 2006, Chris founded Affinity Labs, which ran a portfolio of online professional communities. Both companies were purchased by Monster Worldwide. Chris is an experienced board member and serves as director of Dale Carnegie, Catchlight, KixEye, and 3D Robotics. He was an entrepreneur in residence uh, at Harvard Business School, and prior to his business career, he served as a naval flight officer in the United States Navy. You must follow Chris on Twitter. He's stunning photography and the way he tells stories through images, in my humble opinion, is second to none. On Twitter, he's at Chris Michael, Chris, C-H-R-I-S-M-I-C-H-E-L. Welcome, Chris, to Disrupt TV. Oh, I'm really
2: glad to
1: be here. Hey, awesome having you, Chris. And you know, one of the interesting things about your bio that really stood out for us is being a naval flight officer. That is not an easy thing to do. Now, as a naval flight officer, you know, you've got a lot of things going on. You know, what, you, what did you bring from that experience to, you know, to your business world? And for those who don't know what a naval flight officer, it's, it's basically, you know, uh, in the U.S. Air Force, the same thing to a combat systems officer. I mean, these folks are completely engaged. So
2: It's like Maverick and Goose. I was like Goose, but I, I, <laughs> it I it.
1: Uh yeah, I was, you know, I was in the Navy
2: for um, seven years on active duty, about 11 years uh, in total with reserves. And uh, you know that was gosh. Well, let's see. I was commissioned in 1990, so that's been a long time. And what's interesting about your question is I've gotten that question many times, but it's just really about now that I figured out what I really got out of the Navy. Wow. Um, do you want to hear? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. You got us all yeah.
0: suspense. How are you? Know?
2: Okay. you see 27 years later? Yeah, it, it, it's interesting about some things, you know, they take a while to percolate. I'm not the, the uh, sharpest pencil in the box, but here, here's what I, I learned from the Navy that's applicable today, and that is uh, about motivation and about purpose-driven organizations. So, you know, I'm on the comp committee of a lot of boards. I, I don't like being on the comp committee. We spend a lot of time thinking about how to motivate people with stock options and, uh you know what performance bonuses look like. And you know, those things are fine. And I think people deserve to pay well. But I think um what I learned about the Navy and, and military service is we're able to motivate people with things other than money. And we have a kind of sense of purpose and mission and commitment to each other that are really the strongest bonds and the strongest motivations. And the fact that we can't do pecuniary rewards uh creates a culture where we have to focus on the things, uh, other things. And in my opinion, it's those other things that really drive the best behavior and drive the most happiness and the best retention. So, you know, I think we have a lot to learn from the military and from organizations that are purpose-driven and mission-driven. And I think a lot of those ideas can be and should be built into uh, the very best companies.
1: So you're really talking about a non-monetary approach in leadership, a way to influence other people by getting to a higher purpose, a higher cause. And this is something you know, people have been striving for years in organizations. Like, what, what's missing? Why doesn't it work? Is it because we're just focused on money, or something else becomes a factor?
2: Well, I think that there's a variety of factors. You know, one um, advantage or disadvantage of the military is you know, they just don't have that as an option. So they had to figure out other ways. You know because we have it as an option in corporations and frankly board members, most board members are financial investors, right? So that's the lever that they triangulate on. You know this, uh, and this is maybe a theme of the, the stuff that I'd love to talk about, is um, this idea of, of building incredible culture should be something that starts at the very beginning of the company. Like today we spend a lot of time on, you know, do you have product market fit? Do you have traction? But you know, we don't spend a lot of time talking about do we have good leadership, do we have good culture, do we have a culture of trust? You know, if you don't build those things into the company from the beginning, you have a lot of problems. And I think we're seeing in some of these cases, very successful, at least financially successful companies that have problematic cultures. And um, so uh, I think it's because the people that make the decisions come to the problem a little late because the company's a little bigger and it's not their background, but it's not hard to do. And it really works. We had uh, another venture capitalist, Jason Lemkin, on the show a couple of
0: weeks ago, and he did talk about market fit. He talked about traction, and he thought, for example, he mentioned when you can go from 1 million ARR to 10 million in five quarters or less, that's the benchmark for an ultimate performing startup. But you're talking about traction and market fit doesn't necessarily equate to good leadership,
2: fair I think this is exactly the point we we really spend, think about how many books have been written about how to optimize your company to spend the least amount of capital to get the best product in the market you know the whole lean startup methodology how much time are we talking about how we start the company with the right seeds of trust right I, I never I never really hear anyone talking about that. What does a good culture look like? How do we communicate? What are the pitfalls of CEOs, especially new CEOs, in dealing with their teams? You know, when I started my company, military.com, I got in all sorts of trouble. I have, you know, big insecurity. I didn't listen to other people. You know, we sort of value the genius with a thousand helpers, and you know, there's. That's okay, that's okay, but it isn't sufficient. You know, the purpose of business is to serve society, you know what I mean? It isn't sufficient just to make money. And um, honestly, if we think about a long-term great company, it's that hero's journey where people uh, have built these great cultures. You know, the company that I think of that's very famous, that's been doing a great job is Facebook. You know, in the early days, there were big trust issues there. You had a young CEO, remember his business card said, I think it was something like, I'm the CEO bitch, right? Ooh. And that's, uh, you know, that's not exactly best class leadership. And they've turned, <laughs> they've turned it around and they've done, you know, I all my friends that work there say, hey, they, it really feels good to be there. They feel valued, you know? So the most important product, in my opinion, is, is the people product. It's the culture, it's the team. And, you know, at the end of the day, after you've sold your company, Maybe the thing you look back at that mattered the most is how you affected other people, what mm-hmm. leaders came out of your company, what friends you had. You know, as the CEO, you're the captain of the ship. Maybe the journey of the ship matters as much as the destination. Wow,
0: absolutely.
1: No, that's a very great point. And actually, you know, um, not that I'm a Facebook user, which I'm not, um, it is the best run company in the Valley right now, hands down. I mean, everybody is, is saying that, and it's because they've also defined a strategy of what they're not going to do. They could do a million things and they've been very, very focused, uh, which is very impressive to say, see. Now, as a two-time startup, a successful startup founder, um, I mean, what lessons in leadership, what other advices, advice do you have for founders? I mean, because people are looking at the Zucks of the world. They're also looking at the Travises of the world saying, hey, where, where do I want to fit in this equation? Right? And they're also seeing other folks like, you know, Mark Banioff. They look at other folks like Elon Musk. And you know, there, there's conversations about leadership and that's changing in itself.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because uh, Vala and I did this interview uh, a while back and they were talking about what were the lessons of Military.com. And if you don't know the story, we raised a lot of venture capital and we almost went out of business and I got fired and I got to come back and I made a world of mistakes. And then when we did Affinity, you know, I tried not to make the same mistakes twice or three times. And, you know, there were some lessons, you know, um, and I'll run through them quickly, but I want to get back to the main lesson. So the lessons were don't confuse activities and outcomes right? The lesson was a culture of excellence. And that means that we expect excellence from everyone. And if you're not part of that world, maybe you shouldn't be part of the company. You know, we're going to try to help you. But companies can drive to mediocrity pretty quickly unless um, everyone in the organization really feels committed to building that very, very special culture. Um, But, you know, to me, the main lesson, I think, is that you want to build a team and an organization and experience for people that people look back at and really, really value in their lives. You know, the most important thing we have to give is our time. So what obligation do we have as leaders to our team members? And, you know, to me, if I were building a company, I mean, I'm thankful that I don't have to start a company today because the the war for talent is incredible. But I can tell you, I think the way you win is say, I want to build a different kind of company. I want to build a company that's an incredible experience where all of the people on my team learn, they help each other. It's it's a trust environment, and I think if you did that, and, and you especially if a purpose-driven company, uh, I think you can win. People want this, and I think the you know frankly the younger generation wants it even more. So this is a strategic advantage. When I was uh, first starting my company, people said, "Oh, purpose-driven, or maybe a B Corp." There's some trade-off between maybe financial performance and um, you know, having this alternative mission, which is doing it today, I don't believe there's a trade-off. In fact, I think it supercharges whatever mission you're doing. So, um, you know, obvious ventures, have Williams' venture firm, their investment thesis is world positive companies. You know, we're you're, you're called disrupt TV. Uh, disrupt is a good word, but it's also a challenging word because it could affect people. You know, can we can we um, elevate people, not eliminate people? You know,
0: right, Ray. This is a second or third time. Someone has commented on the name of our, our show, so something for you and I to think about.
1: Well, but, it's a great word, but I
0: used to think of it only as a positive
2: word, but it's more complicated than that, right?
1: Oh, it's, yeah. Outside the is. valley, yes. Yeah, yeah,
0: no, absolutely. You know, the more I read about, we, right before the show, we were talking about autonomous vehicles. And
1: yeah. you think about the
0: impact of just that on, you know, I think the most popular job in the 50 states in our country is truck driver. So, yeah. You know, how, how, how does the impact of, uh, you know, technology uh, in terms of jobs and retooling and, and, and building society for the better? Now, now, so I'm a startup founder, and I'm going to pitch to you my company. What are you looking for <laughs> uh, to determine whether the, the, the characteristics of, uh, of, of, of someone who can potentially, you know, build a great, strong, purpose-driven company?
2: Well, you know, it's interesting. I just met with Mike Maples. Do you know, Mike at Floodgate, and he's a great, great VC. Yep. You know, he articulated something to me, which I thought was real—a really nice way to put it. You know, I'm a seed investor, and he differentiated seed investors from Series A investors. Is that seed investors are investing, <laughs> are investing in people to try to figure out if they can get the product to product market fit. Can they create something that will do that? And Series A, it's do they have product market fit? And then beyond that, it's obviously you know scaling capital for traction. So what I'm looking for are kind of like personality characteristics or maybe business characteristics that are really just early indicators and then maybe that's the nature of your question. And then there's also what I want to do, which is different than is it a good business or not. And um, so what I'm looking for is someone with a lot of passion. I, I want to, to invest in someone that has high integrity, someone that cares about um, the product and the pro- a product that makes a difference in the world. Um, it isn't sufficient just to have something that can make money. I, I don't think, you know, um, although those are great, you know. Um, I personally like businesses that can do a lot of testing without, without very much capital. I'm looking for entrepreneurs that are committed, right? So sometimes you hear people say, uh, I want to fail fast. That's the, the worst thing you can say to me. What I want to hear is, uh, well, here's what the tests look like. Here's what the initial product looks like. If it doesn't work, here here might be the three or four things we're going to do to keep optimizing, because I've seen and including my own companies i've been at failure you know failure mode over and over and over again so i guess it's this tenacity it's passion it's integrity and do have a good product sense in a market that matters so those may sound like obvious things but some people have one or two of those things in spades and are missing the others you know and i want to have a truthful conversation so people talk about their billion dollar revenue potential in year 4 I don't know why people bring me pitches that say that because it's, you know, I haven't actually seen it actually ever happen. It's possible. Uh, Live in the world of reality with me. Let's just, you know, tell me what's not working. That's okay, you know. People, it's so much more powerful in a board meeting or in a pitch for people to say, here are the four problems of my own company. I love that. You know, then we can work on it together.
1: Oh, come on. Mike likes atomic eggs and thunder lizards and $4 billion valuations. <laughs> <laughs> Comic are a big thing no but hey this is this is important right i mean you're really talking about changing the culture how people communicate with each other what levels of trust um you're really asking people to communicate with a level of authenticity um that doesn't often exist in these conversations and you know and then there's this one other piece that you actually exemplify a lot which is really how you talk about creativity right how do you teach creativity um so here's here's something for you like how do you teach this creativity um how do you capture that spirit of a sense of adventure and you know where do you bring all that together how do you find people like that as well
2: uh well maybe the first part of the question is you know about teaching creativity can we teach it you know i guess my view is uh, i never thought about being a photographer until um a good friend of mine gave me a camera when i was leaving business school and boy, it, it unlocked this whole life for me. And I guess I, this is what I believe for a lot of people, it's in all of us, it's just been probably um, removed through a lot of schooling and a lot of work. So I think we all have this creative potential and the real question is what's the combination lock? You know, and part of that I think is us giving ourselves permission to be creative. You know, uh, I, it's probably better I'm not creative with a paintbrush, because I'm not going to be that good. Uh, <laughs> so I found the thing that sort of works for me. And when I teach photography to people, And when I say teach, I'll have coffee with either of you or anyone and say, hey, let's talk about therapy." What I want for you is to take a picture that you're proud of, one picture. Because if you get that, you get a little bit of positive feedback. And that positive feedback can be turned into a lot of things. And this is true with lots of things in our life. All we need is a little encouragement that it's sort of working and maybe we keep doubling down. So I think it's really about unlocking this for people. Um, Mostly people I see are very creative. They probably aren't finding me if they're not creative. You know, and what I hope for a lot of people is we all find something in our lives because, you know, frankly, creation and and entrepreneurship is a kind of creation, I think, is the the source of the most rewarding life.
0: Absolutely. You know, when I see your photos, so there's a certain class of photos where there isn't a human in sight anywhere as far as the eye can see. And I'm always thinking, where is he? And who's there with him? And how did he get there? So that's one, one and, and extraordinary photos, but you can see the horizon, and as far as you can go, and there's nothing there. Uh,
1: and there's no footprints. <laughs> How does he do that? How does <laughs> he do it?
0: Uh, so, so but, but what I admire most is you share photos of people that you admire. In fact, often when you tag them, I go look them up and see, should I follow this person? What do they do? Because, you know, I, 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 I really respect your, your opinion. So if that's someone that you admire, I want to know them. Who, what? Who are your mentors and sponsors and folks that you uh, that, that you generally hang out
2: with and what's what's unique about them in terms of why you admire them? Um, well, you know, the, the gift in my life and probably the gift in many people's lives are the friends that you have. And I spend uh, most of my time when I'm not shooting with interesting people. We have coffee and we talk about their lives. And uh, you know, I admire uh, almost all humans. You know, if you're a nice person and you're trying to do well in the world. Um, You know, and I'm friends with lots of baristas and I'm friends with lots of CEOs and I admire them equally, but the people that really stand out for me are the people with the big hearts, the people that sacrifice for others, that care for other people, you know, and I have a a good list of those people because those are the people that I choose to spend more time with, right? You could be a billionaire, fly around in your G550 and have great parties and that doesn't get you on the coffee list for me, right? What gets you on the coffee list for me is, that you want to talk about ideas and things that matter and you're a giving person and you listen to others and you know um, you probably heard me talk about people like amy eric who's running uh, yes. a company that yeah. i'm an investor in madison Reed, hair color mm-hmm. i mean that that's the, like the furthest away from anything i know about <laughs> but boy i admire amy because she's built a culture of love and she's building this company on this on this sort of cornerstone and it's working Boy, i really want to see you know we need more examples of people doing that you know, people like Ann Dwayne, I think you probably know about Anne, who's an entrepreneur resident at Harvard, co founded military with me. All heart does it all for other people. Um, you know, people like O. Malik, the journalist, all yeah. heart does it for other people. Chris it's Anderson, a- I'm on the board of Chris Anderson's company. He was the editor in chief of Wired Magazine. He's written a lot oh, of best all drones, right? And he's the, he's the CEO and founder of 3D Robotics, and I've been on the board. And 3 your robotics, well, you probably have read, we've had some challenges. So we made a cool drone, and then the Chinese came in, the DJI guys, and and our revenue, uh, you know, went way, way, way down, and we pivoted out of hardware and into software. And boy, let me tell you, uh, and you raise, we raise a lot of venture capital, that isn't easy. And Chris, every day comes to work, and he's enthusiastic, and he's... Positive, and he's pivoting, and, and actually has pivoted into a whole new business, which would have this whole thing could have destroyed so many people. But he he did it. Uh, he did it from his heart, and he did it from a place of confidence and a sense that um, you know these challenges are a part of who we are as entrepreneurs. Um, you know, uh, VC another guy, VC John Callahan, who's actually on the board of 3D Robotics with me from True Ventures. All heart gives to other people, and you know, this is maybe I'm, I'm turning fifty in. Um, at the end of the summer and you know what i hope for everyone is is the lesson that i've learned that i didn't know until 10 years ago and that is the more we give to other people the more we get ourselves the rewards uh, all accrue to us and you know uh, you don't have to try to impress people what people really want us to feel valued and as a ceo or a leader if you do that the world will be unlocked for you
1: Awesome leadership lessons. We're here with Chris Michael, entrepreneur, investor, photographer, awesome photographer, and managing director at Nas Ventures. Chris, thank you for being on the show. So, yeah, Chris, hour. thank you. And you, you so can much follow much. Chris. You're
0: giving me another hit blog for sure. Okay. Your, your words you, of wisdom are, are just amazing. Thank you so much. Thank yeah.
1: Thank, Thank you. you. And you can follow Chris on Twitter at Chris Michael, M-I-C-H-E-L, um, and definitely get some very interesting lessons and photography. So take care. This is okay, thanks, Chris. <laughs> this is awesome. We should have done this for, like, longer. <laughs> so, I,
0: I'll tell you, I, honestly, I can listen to Chris for hours. Uh, he's just extraordinary.
1: Um, I wonder if he does keynotes. I'll check out with him later because uh, this would be awesome. So and, and, like I,
0: I, and, I'm, and I'm serious about storytelling through pictures. Uh, when you follow Chris on Twitter, um, you know, the the photography and, and the, and, you know, and the words he used to describe, you know, yeah, they're the,
1: so precise. Yeah. They're oh, so precise. Right. It's, it's like, it's like this other guy is like, you know, charts that he puts out on these abstract concepts that are hot that we're about to have <laughs> next as a guest, you know. The you know, charts are amazing. You look at them like, what the hell? Oh, shit, he's covered everything here. Wait, it, wait, it one more thing. No, it's all in here. It so is the most dynamic much, charts we've ever seen. So.
0: It's unbelievable how much information Dion can put in, uh, in an illustration. Uh, and uh, I truly an honor for both Ray and I to have Dion Hinchcliffe, Vice President, Principal Analyst at Constellation Research. I've <laughs> heard
1: of them. So.
0: <laughs> as our guest. Dion, <laughs> by the way, this is, yeah. I had to cut this bio short, so but let's see if I did a good job. Anyway, yeah, Dion is an internationally recognized business strategist, best selling author, enterprise architect, industry analyst, and keynote speaker. He's widely recognized one of the most influential figures in digital strategy, future of work, and enterprise IT. I personally, you you two are the top two thought leaders in terms of enterprise in in my book. So I'm just just putting it out there. He's he's, he's currently the vice president and principal analyst at Constellation Research and chief strategy officer at Seven Summits. Again, an industry expert on the topics of digital transformation, digital workplace, social collaboration, API strategy, social business, service-oriented architecture, and much more. He is one of the top influencers for CIOs as recognized by many organizations. His thought leadership can be found on ZDNet. Oh, ZDNet. There seems to be a theme here. I feel uh, left out right. with you, Ray and Larry. I feel kind of left out here. <laughs> but uh, but uh, uh, and, and 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 he's recently identified, as I mentioned, by Robert Half Technologies one of the top three people mentioned by CIOs worldwide. Uh, industry analytics firm On Analytica ranked Dion as number two influencer globally on the subject of digital transformation. A must follow on Twitter at D-H-I-N-C-H-C-L-I-F-F-E. Is that right? I think that's right. Dion, that's right. You thank yeah. you for joining
3: thank us. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you. great introduction. Appreciate that. Hi, Ray. Happy Friday, everyone.
1: Happy Friday. Now, hey, one of the things that you've been good at, Dion, is really influencing CIOs. And, you know, you're seeing that shift as CIOs enter the digital world. What makes a great CIO today? What are some characteristics that you're seeing as people are moving and progressing towards the digital world?
3: Yeah, we really see this move away from the the old-school CIO that, you know, the Dr. know as we used to say, is, you know, know, trying to do everything themselves, um, uh, providing all the IT solutions, uh, developing strategy. Now we see much more inclusive models for the the CIO, and they're much more customer-centric. Today's effective and successful CIO it puts the customer first and we see the customer experience that's you know the top of everyone's agenda because that's what creates the most value you know I think it was watermark consulting does that yearly assessment the customer experience leaders greatly outperform the market and th- that's where the CIO can provide real business value so we see customer centricity uh, putting the customer and that's the internal customer too right uh, but also the external customer uh, in a way that wasn't true before the CMO still has a lot of power with that outside um, a lot of influence with that outside view, but the, the CIO makes that happen. I think we're even seeing that the chief digital officer now will probably end up report, going back and reporting to the CIO. Uh, but we also see a startup mentality, right, but an understanding of how to map that onto the enterprise. Because the enterprise, these big companies are, are much different than these startups, uh, yet the startups are bringing all the innovative ideas when it comes to, you know, how do we make digital happen? How do we do it quickly? How do we scale and engage with millions or tens of millions or hundreds of millions of people? These are what these traditional businesses want to do. Uh, and they're also talent magnets in a way that wasn't before. They didn't have to be before. It used to be you could, you could find people. Now, with digital infusing everything, you can't find good people like you used to be able to. It's a full-time job now to recruit and, and bring in the right talent. And the Internet's one single flat market, so uh, you know it's hyper competition. So you can't just hire good people. You have to hire great people if you want to be a leading organization or if you just want to survive, right? So those are some of that. I've, I've written a lot more about the, what the new mindset, but those are like the key
1: attributes. You did those, you do very well. So good is not enough. So good is not enough, not anymore.
0: So, so you, you cover a lot of industries. You speak to a lot of um, chief information, frankly, CXOs. Um, what industries are doing well in terms of attracting the right talent, strong talent, and then also advancing and becoming early adopters of some of these mega trend technologies that are really cha- changing the, the, the digital landscape.
3: Yeah, I find that companies that have a technical background tend to be doing a lot better. So if you look at like, you know, General Electric, they're doing fantastic and they're, they have all the digital transformation case studies, but their discipline kind of is around, you know, uh, uh, material sciences and manufacturing and designing and engineering things, right? And we saw we see this also in financial services. Um, you know, you can make a lot of money in financial services, so that attracts the top talent. Uh, they're also very tech-centric. The IT departments of financial services are bigger than anybody else. They're you know they exude technology, uh, and so they were the early adopters. You look at almost any trend, financial services is first in. Media is often first in, but that doesn't get as much respect as financial services, obviously. And so. Um, Yeah, we see that the farther away you are from the technology business, the harder you're having a a harder time you're having keeping up with digital change, right? And digital Darwinism is is very cruel if you don't have the kind of background it takes to digitize your organization across the board. Uh, So I I think, you know, we look at those those industries and then, you know, uh, manufacturing in certain sectors. transportation, you know, airlines in, in areas where they aren't regulated anyway, uh, are doing very interesting things too. So, but again, as, as you move away from that, the, the big companies with all that, te- all that technology, the heart of the time that, uh, that firms have. Do you, you see know,
0: media, media and retail as industries that are able to attract the right talent? And I mentioned those two because I feel like those are the two industries that are need to put on their seat. Well, I'll tell you what. I, <laughs>
3: We know they want to go work for Google and Facebook and Amazon, right? The best of the best want to go work with the the, the top companies doing the coolest stuff. There's no question about that. And you know, so I talk when I talk and go into a talk to an insurance company, um, attracting talent uh, to work, uh, you know, in, in reinventing the insurance business. You know, I've I've uh, been talking to a lot, actually, a lot of insurance CIOs recently, and their big challenge is that their business model is changing because data is going to change insurance forever. We, the insurance companies have so much more information about risk and who they can and should ensure um, that uh, it, it's completely revolutionizing that market, yet they can't attract the talent to, to reinvent the industry. So the, insur- the insurance industry has been moving slowly. Uh, and so that's re- really where we see this, 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 this sh- the sharp demarcation is, that, you know, it's the internet companies, it's the digital natives that are attracting the very, very cream of the crop, the triple A players. Um, and it's these other organizations are—they're able to staff in, you know, and some people, some of the top players have constraints. They don't want—they can't move for family reasons to the east or west coast. But uh, and, you know, and, and that's a way to kind of segment out how you can attract the right talent.
0: And just to be yeah. clear, digital native is born born in the cloud, mobile, social—that's what yeah, you
3: more, mean. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and yeah, Now born, you know, thinking, baking AI deeply
1: into what you do. Wow. So that means there's a shift in terms of how people are viewing this, and especially CIOs. Where do you see the shift in terms of thinking and approach um, that, that changes the way not only they, they lead, they hire, they set strategic direction?
3: Well, I think that uh, it's, this, it's this concept that I've been talking about a lot the last few years. Uh, I, really, I, I picked it up um, with my, uh, my conversations with J.P. Rangaswamy, if you know who he is. Um, and, and J.P. was talking back then about, to get the most, and this is what uh, what Chris was just talking about, to get the most value from something, you have to give. And so you have to open your platform or share your data. And this is true especially of the CIO, as in you can't do everything yourself. The uh, Most IT departments are running at about 5% or 6% of company revenue. Yet they're supposed to digitize the entire organization and digitize all their suppliers and partners and digitize their customers. Not happening. It's that can't do it. You you have to think in a completely different way. You have to open up, and this is what we see leading organizations. Amazon understood this almost day one. You have to open up and build uh, a platform, your platform, your business, so that everyone is helping you digitize. Anyone in the organization can help you digitize. Uh, Any of your business partners can come in and help you digitize, build on your business platform, and anyone out there who thinks you have great data or, or otherwise values your platform will get on there and build all of those IT solutions, 100x more IT uh, than you could ever do yourself. And, and that's what we see these the top leaders. Amazon it isn't just the Amazon company, it's not just their web services, it's the tens of thousands of fantastic things that they run, generates their business and flows. So they make most of their money off Amazon web services, again, by giving up control. So the, probably the most important mindset is this designing for loss of control, not giving up control. But, design, but opening up in just the right way so that you get the most value flowing into your organization. That makes a lot
0: of sense. Um, in, in one of your most recent uh, ZDNet uh, articles, you talked about uh, five emerging technologies to accelerate for rapid digital transformation. In the post, you noted 94% of executives say they're feeling significant pressure to move quicker than ever before to keep up with pace of technology change. Can you talk to us about any one or all of the five emerging technologies that you noted and, and, and any specific one you think is, is a main driver for, for accelerating transformation?
3: Well, the one that, at the top of that survey, so I, I selected, I handpicked what I thought the top CIOs were doing the most innovative things, and I said, what are you, what are you doing? What are you facing right now? And, and they all said, well, we have huge wins to their back, as you said, strong, it's uh, a very strong pressure, 94% of them. Uh, And I said, well, what are you going to use this year to accelerate your efforts? And data was the number one response far and away. Business intelligence, analytics, big data, uh, it's information to make decisions faster. That's what it really boils down to. It's instrumenting everything in their businesses so that they can run projects faster, they can get KPI measures faster to, to be able to make optimization and changes. It's just that flow of data that you move faster. We learned this in, in the Agile world with Agile methods. Right? It's these fast feedback loops. You know, have your customer in the room with you. Change the product, show it to them, go, is this what you want? And, that, and, and that's a, almost a real-time activity as opposed to scheduling a meeting a week later to see if they like it, right? So it's getting that data to, to work to make decisions and change the organization faster based on ground truth. That was far and away the top. The, the top you're
1: making me have a flashback, and I'm thinking about what's going on. I mean, go back to SOA, right? And you're talking all about microservices. These all come back and play a role in digital. So tell me what's going on with microservices, and how is this all coming back together? Microservices are, are uh, what I would say SOA done right. So we
3: had this, this big uh, uh, thought experiment early on when we knew we had to open up and integrate everything, right? We knew that was coming in web services. And so we, we, we put on, you know, we got our engineering hats up, we theorized what we would need. Well, it wasn't what we really needed. We needed a lot more experience. And so now 10, 12 years later, we have that experience. We know what works. So you know, really simple APIs, the REST model, the JSON, all those. But we have to make them ready for business and to make that kind of simple, those simple technologies simple, Integration points work, but they're not enterprise ready. And microservices does that. It, it, it provides a way of opening up everything in your organization in a business-friendly way, in a manageable way, in a scalable way uh, that an enterprise can deal with. And then it's it's essentially allows you to that do that designing for loss of control. You're saying I'm going to expose and I lose control beyond that boundary, but now I get I get the benefits of everything that's connected to that, right? So it's, it's micro uh, microservices on the road to ecosystem.
0: Dion, we've had uh, marketing leaders from companies, you know, digital immigrant to digital native, from Whitebrook Technologies to Spotify, come on our show and talk about the marketing stack, tech stack. And based on your, 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 your experience, who, who controls yeah. the marketing stack most? Is it the CMO? Is it the CIO? Does the chief digital officer come into play? Who, who ultimately... Owns or or is driving the decisions in terms of building an investment thesis for the marketing tech stack.
3: Well, the unsatisfying answer, of course, is it depends. But 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 if we look at the broader trend, the CMO badly wants control. If you look at a uh, chief martech, that's his Twitter handle. I can't remember his name off the top of my head. He's been tracking the number know. of marketing products out every year, and we've gone from about 150 marketing stacks in uh, in uh, 2011 to over 3,500. Yeah, in, Scott in Sorry, that was
0: Scott Brinker. CIO yes. is
3: not an expert in that. Yeah. yeah, the CIO is does not have competency to manage that. The rate of changes happening in marketing, it, even the CMO does it, But the CMO is much closer to the problem and has a better chance of being able to evaluate. So I'm seeing CIOs of marketing occur. I see shadow IT departments of marketing gr- uh, growing quickly. Uh, marketing, uh, the digital marketing departments are growing like it's twenty or thirty percent a year, much faster wow. than IT is growing, wow. right? And, and so, th- you know, we're, we're seeing that the, the, the move is they're bringing the CIO in to make sure that they, they pin inside the lines around customer privacy and and regulation and all of that, and then they run really fast on their own with their own dollars. We're seeing we're seeing the CMOs really grabbing the reins on all the details, with the the CIOs involved in the outlines. That's the, the broad trend.
1: So one of the things that uh, you know that's changed in the last few weeks for you is you joined Constellation. So tell us what you're going to be doing. I'm super excited. So, yeah, we're really excited. So it's excellent to have you. So. Yeah, fantastic uh, to be on board, Ray. I'm looking forward to working with you guys, and it's already been a great, great first week. Yeah, no, tell tell us um what you're what you're going to be covering, what you plan to do, uh, what kind of research is on your agenda, what's hot.
3: Yeah, so, uh, so my the, my big focus is the new C suite is leadership is changing forever, being transformed by digital, and and helping helping the leaders around the world understand what that means. What does that look like? How do they have to change? How do they get there? Uh, because digital is changing everything about businesses, including how we lead and run our organizations. Uh, so I'll be looking at at that uh, story along with uh, digital transformation, how to make that possible, um, and uh, uh, focus on we know that uh, the management theory around all of you know how digital changes the way we lead companies, network leadership, looking at the future of work and how we're going to be remaking our organizations up uh, from the ground up both top-down and bottom-up, uh, with the help, um, uh, you know, with co-creation uh, with our workforce. Um, so how does that look? Uh, we, have, we we can see the future by looking at a few advanced organizations. So I'll be telling that story. Um, you know, so I'm doing a lot of storytelling around how companies are getting into the future and sharing best practices uh, and all the lessons that we're learning.
0: That's awesome. Um, I'm looking forward to your coverage, you, and you hinted a bit. Uh, in a recent post, in terms of after years of incremental progress, you're seeing enterprise collaboration industry is currently seeing a burst of innovation. And yes. you identified the root cause in terms of these advances advances and how enterprise collaboration is exciting again. And you noted new emerging technologies. You talked about a trend back towards lightweight, lightweight text chat. And lastly, new successful experiments in the integration of productivity tools together with collaboration apps. Can you talk a little bit about uh, these three trends that you noted and why it's uh, collaboration and enterprise is yep. sexy again?
3: Absolutely. Well, it's the collaboration paradox has been, has been really thwarting us, right? So the more tools we have, the less connected we seem, right? We, got, we have chat and communications and collaboration apps for everything. I got, I got you know, 25 of them on my phone. And so it, it's fragmenting conversation. And so now we're seeing some companies, and the whole, the whole latest crop of these tools, you look at Microsoft Teams, Cisco, Spark, Facebook at Work, Slack Enterprise Grid, Microsoft Teams, they're all, all uh, allowing apps, all the things that you spend time in, including other collaboration communication tools to work in one place, and they have one place to, to track notifications, one place to search, one place to work. And we'll see how successful they are. Only Slack has really managed to get the real traction in that by creating a you know, very vibrant app ecosystem. Again, they gave up control and they're getting all the value back. And they give up control in the right way. Um, we also see cognitive technologies. Artificial intelligence makes collaboration better because you have these bots listening to what you need. Uh, you either talk directly with them or they just they overhear what you're doing. Like a doctor could be collaborating or communicating with a patient. And the, the, the bot can be going through the patient's files, uh, looking up symptoms, and aiding the doctor in real time uh, by, by checking, you know, thousands of points of data to assist in that patient conversation, uh, greatly boosting the value of the, that, that collaborative you know, time period that, that they have. So uh, these, these tools are, uh, we see this kind of convergence of everything into these hubs. A lot of bets at this new hub model, you know, we, don't, don't, we only have a couple data points, but they're good ones. Uh, are, are coming. And so I, I'm excited about the collaboration again in a way I haven't been for a couple of years.
0: Certainly the AI and chatbot landscape is is exploding and of course powered by natural language, machine learning, deep learning. So yeah, I think there's definitely going to be augmented intelligence, turbocharging, the innovation that you'll see in the collaboration space, and it'll impact sales, marketing, service. I think all yes, of those in particular, yeah.
2: part, of, part of the revolution. Yeah.
1: We're listening here to Diane Hinchcliffe, VP and Principal Asset, Constellation Research, massive CIO influencer, and definitely um, someone you should follow at D H I N C H C L I double F-E. Dion. Diane, thanks for being here. And uh I you know, really appreciate you. you.
0: Great Stay talking to you. Diane. Thank you very much.
1: So wow, the theme here today has been leadership, right? Leadership at all levels. And then we've got our 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 top. Our top editor in chief in the enterprise. Who do we have here? Absolutely.
0: As you all know, our, uh, first ballot Hall of Fame future inductee to uh, Disrupt TV. And uh, our, our, our regular uh, cleanup hitter, <laughs> Larry Digman, editor in chief of ZDNet uh, and, and Smart, Smart Planet, as well as editorial director of ZDNet's sister site, Tech Republic. Uh, Larry uh, was most recently executive director of news and blogs at CDNet. Prior to that, he was executive news editor at EWeek and new editor at Baseline. He's covered technology and financial services industry. I keep saying this every time he comes since 1995. (laughs) I don't mean to. Publishing articles (laughs) from Wall Street Journal, Interactive Week, New York Times, Financial Planning Magazine, another must-follow on Twitter, and a prolific blogger, so it's both blogs and and on Twitter at l d i g n a n. Welcome, Larry, to uh, Disrupt TV.
4: Good to be here. Although I must admit, all that talk about collaboration just puts me in a bad mood. <laughs> oh, I because thought it was attending conferences. It's just, just tool sprawl. It's just one more tool that isn't going to do a damn thing for me. <laughs> so what I really need, I need a bot that will be a, clone, a digital clone of me. That can go on all these calls and deal with these chats and take care of all it. the dumb stuff. That's what I need. So until then, I need I need cognitive stuff that will allow allow me to not collaborate. I I, I want collaboration, a bot, and an outsourcing
1: model. So everyone, I, just, I respect this collaboration with a bot. No, it's like it. So Larry,
0: Larry's looking for collaboration technology to minimize his personal collaboration opportunities.
4: Yes. I want, and I, I, it's sort of, think of it like G's digital clone. That's what I want, except for me. Just just work on my behalf, get all the grunt work out of the way so I can do the fun stuff.
0: <laughs> well, we had a VC on the show. This might be a startup uh, idea we can do. No, no, it would be ahead.
4: Because I, I don't think the answer is more collaboration. I think it's less. So, call me crazy. Can you tell I've been in PowerPoints way too much this week? We
0: should have had. <laughs> yeah, yeah, We'll have an up following segment with you and Dion talking about collaboration. The exactly. juxtaposition is going be great.
4: I want a clone, damn it. A digital clone. That's what I want.
1: <laughs> well, I can tell you more about those later. So. <laughs> yeah, you kind of you try it i've heard about this so so, there's a bunch of top stories you guys are talking about one of them is xfinity mobile as comcast's customer first story um what's in this right is loyalty does anybody care about loyalty retention lifetime value does it really work well the whole time i was listening to comcast talk about their mobile
4: venture i was thinking the exact same thing and i don't think comcast is all that crazy to be honest i mean Basically, they're, they have a deal with Verizon to resell their LTE, and they're going to, you know line up all their Wi-Fi hotspots. and they're going to do it in a way that's supposed to be seamless. And this is all bundle economics, right? So they're measuring the value of their mobile service service on whether they can sell to their 29 million subscribers and keep them, which I think is going to be pretty disruptive. Because if you're T-Mobile or whoever, you're cutting prices to land a Verizon customer. So, you know, it kind of proves the axiom that it's easier to keep a customer. It's, it's more efficient than keep a customer than necessarily add one after you churn. And Comcast gets that, right? That's kind of their business. It's about churn, subscribers, bundle economics. And, you know, I, I sort of listen to this and, you know, assuming they don't really screw up the customer service, I think they could probably scale this because it's not, you know, unless Verizon just gets pissed off over the economics and goes, you know what, guys, you're you're taking our customers and our footprint anyway. But that's kind of set up like a win-win, right? Because Verizon gets the traffic on its network, and so does Comcast. Um, so it's fascinating. But, but it really, it's all about customer experience, and it's about the bundle. And sure. if you look at how – if you go over the top and you start unbundling services and all that, it doesn't take a rocket science to realize that, you kind of add up to what you were paying pretty quickly. So, I don't know. A
1: wireless i oh Am I getting a good deal? How'd that happen?
4: <laughs> yeah, go figure. But yeah, I mean, you start adding up those fourteen ninety nines a month, and guess what? You get to something that sounds like a cable package. Um, so yeah, it's, it's interesting.
0: You had noted in your blog, uh, CEO of Comcast Cable, uh, Dave Watson said, customer loyalty will be, how we'll rate success and, yeah. and how, we, how, how well we do in terms of improving retention. We had Jason Lemkin, who's managing a $70 million fund, he's a venture capitalist last week, I think he was on our show, or the week before. And he said the number one thing he looks for in terms of investing in a company is the net promoter score. And it was the first time I heard a VC talk about the fact that he will only invest in companies that have an NPS of 50 or greater. Now we have Comcast talking about measuring success with customer loyalty. I would, is, 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 this seems to be real. People are looking at total lifetime value of the customer and loyalty as a way to grow their business. Is that a? Do you see that trend uh, as as you in you know research companies?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think that's the case. I mean, for anything that's a subscriber business, for sure. Yeah. Um, any cloud company has that. I mean, as more businesses are subscriber based, that's going to happen. Um, I do have some problems with betting on a company based on their MPS score. Like, you don't want something in the tank. Yeah. But I don't know. I, I mean, we've we've gotten those for years, and and <laughs> it seems kind of flawed because it's never the same people, right. right? It's a panel. You go out and you survey, and I it's you can't you can't really test the shifts because it all depends on the sample they get at the time.
0: That is um, true. That is so true. It's
4: interesting. It's interesting. It, I think it's reliable over time, yeah. but. You know, in the short term, I don't, I don't quite know what the NPS is worth. I mean, it is a standard. That's like every other standard, right? There, there's issues with them, um, but you got to do something, right? So, Ray,
0: Ray, do you think we'll ultimately with AI go to like a social promoter score, where rather than asking for intent for advocacy, which is currently NPS, we should be asking, "Did you recommend us to a colleague or a friend, and did it result in business?" And can't we study on structured data just like sentiment on social and get that answer without Doing a formal survey?
1: You know, I think so. And actually, I think it's going to be also by influence and influence nodes, who's driving conversations, what value exchange is happening. I mean, we we talked earlier um, in another segment on the show, which we talked about, you know, really how how people are, are rewarded in leadership right, with Chris, and the things is that we forget is in value exchange, we all remember monetary, right, you bought something, you traded money, something happened, but the non-monetary value exchange is just as important, you got a like, you got a recommendation, something good happened, and even more importantly is the ability to get the consensus or an agreement, right, and so once we understand what's happening in these value exchanges, I think this will, this will drive that, so, but, but Larry, I, I think there's, there's all these other funky, sh- funky things that are going on in the marketplace, one of them is Muglia. Snowflake Computing, 100 million bucks. I forgot where Muglia was. I didn't realize our, the Microsoft guy ended up over at Snowflake Computing. And he calls what? Hadoop a science project? Well, yeah,
4: that was what's kind of interesting. I mean, it's, Snowflake it's, is basically it's an analytics platform. It's basically a cloud data warehouse, right? It competes. it's not
1: a millennial data project?
4: No. And it competes with Redshift, which is AWS's thing. Um and then they're building on top of AWS. So it's interesting. And you know, I I did a QA with him earlier this week and you know, we just talked about Hadoop and who do you compete with? And you know, and he he it was interesting because he was saying Hadoop's a cloud, it's a science project, people can't really get to work um beyond like twenty companies.
1: No, nah, no, no, that would be Palantir. Get yeah. As
4: he's saying this, well, yeah, there's a bunch of them like that. Um yeah as he's saying this, you know, Cloudera is basically, you know, filing up for a big IPO. So it's fascinating. And, you know, and I don't think he's wrong, right? Like the Hadoop stuff, all the big data stuff, it's pretty wonky. Right. And you can package it and all that. And I mean, all you gotta do is look at the Hadoop, you know, the Apache Hadoop project page and you know, there's hive, there's pig, there's all the stuff. Right. And to boil it all down, all these projects are just trying to make Hadoop more usable. It's a zoo. The sequel to no sequel is more sequel. Right. So you kind of look at it and you're like, well, eh, I don't know. You know, like if, if you if you have 15 projects to make something work better, you, is is that core really all that great? I don't know. Um, so so you know maybe Moogly has a point. I, that just stuck out for me though. I was like, wow, okay. And Very I don't think he's wrong.
1: Right. Very so. interesting on the Bob Moo front. I mean, he, he's definitely a legend, uh, especially yeah. in building platforms and apps, given his tenure at Microsoft and, and, and what he was doing. So. Exactly.
4: So the other thing that was interesting this week, while we're talking subscription and customer loyalty, is Taser. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The guys that shoot you with stuff and electrocute you. That is so cool. <laughs> but they totally, as of yesterday, they changed their name to Axon which Axon is their cloud platform that has evidence.com and a few other things. But basically if you'd use taser hardware and you wear those Axon body cameras, they're always sending data up to, a, to the cloud. Yep. And they're basically saying, they change your name, they're like, we're gonna be a software and services and cloud company. And it's interesting, because you know they, they have uh, 268 million in revenue for the year in 2016, and 65 million of that was the cloud stuff. But they're basically saying this is a platform, hardware, software, It, it you know, it, it sounds a lot like the hybrid cloud people, right? Here's a server, here's a cloud, here's some services, blah, blah, blah. Um, but, you know, I, I can't roll it out. I mean, the growth's kind of there, and they're giving away all these body cameras, they're giving away like year subscriptions to get the police agencies on board, and there I have 6,000 of them, right? Mm-hmm. So you can kind of see the platform play, right? Like where, you know, as oh, it's, a, it's, as it's,
1: it's massive. It's, it's massive crack cocaine for police departments, right? Because the body cams, they all need it for evidence, right? right. Just to make sure that everything's going around, they follow the right procedure. They're doing it for free, and then what happens? The money is all in the data and mining on discovery. Right. And making sure you have it there for compliance purposes. So it's, it's actually a pretty smart set strategy. So, so instead of showing just the hardware now, they're going to have all these insights on how different police departments work. They've got all this other cool stuff coming on the back end in terms of just even image monitoring. Right. So, right. and they so can
4: add a lot of value added analytics and all this stuff. And they already have 6.5 petabytes of data on evidence.com now. So it's almost like a, it's kind of cool. I mean, it was funny when I saw taser, you know, I, I couldn't help but thinking, and and, you know, it it, it was, it was straight down. My first reaction was total punchline. And then after I started reading in, I'm reading their investor presentations. I'm like, you know, this is kind of savvy. Um, I don't know if it'll work, but I don't see why it wouldn't. Right. It's not like, it's not like everybody's in the police agency business. Right. So it's pretty interesting.
1: No, but they can soon actually use, um, you know, those cameras, all the, all the Russians have like on their, on their, on their dashboards to make sure that if you got in an accident, it wasn't really their fault, right? right? All those kind of things. That's the next part of the business if they ever get into it, right? Because those, that same technology is being used all the time to you know, track what's going on in motion. So,
4: yeah, so it's, it's pretty, you know, I, I'd, I'd probably give their chances a pretty good. As,
0: into- the, as the ride sharing economy grows, certainly having those type of capabilities probably will, <laughs> if that's the model to go. Somehow I have a gut feeling that Ray has had personal experience with Taser, but will, that's another show.
1: <laughs> you know, there's deploying the it and being on the other end. I'm, I'm not going to. Yeah, the closest
4: I've ever been. I've, I've worn a doll. I've worn one of those dog shock collars once for giggles. That's the closest <laughs> <one> I- <laughs> the um, Taser thing that looks way too extreme.
0: Yeah. Uh, Another, another uh, article that you wrote um, focused on demand for e-commerce in business, um, and specifically uh, talking about Ralph Lauren. Uh, what lessons can we learn there in terms of companies um, passionately, aggressively, wanting to build capabilities in-house, and then shifting their and pivoting their, 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 their strategy and execution? Is, is, is this something that you see more um, in terms of keeping up with technology that ultimately will help you stay relevant?
4: Yeah, well, I mean, every retailer is trying to go omni-channel. And it's interesting. I mean, Ralph Lauren's been doing this for a couple of years, and they're focusing on the back-end inventory. That, you know, that they've invested heavily in SAP to get their supply chain, all that sort of going. And then on the front end of the e-commerce stuff, the e-commerce platform they were going to do in-house and you know a day doesn't go by where you don't see some retailer closing a ton of stores yeah sure and they I'll were basically highlight. like yeah Ralph Lauren basically they called an audible because they couldn't build the system fast enough so they wound up they wound up deciding to go to salesforce um just to get it up faster but it, it does highlight i mean it's interesting if you look at Ralph Lauren's financials the brick and mortar stores are doing way better than E-commerce. So I think in the fourth quarter, the brick-and-mortar stores were down like three percent. E-commerce was down like nine,
1: nine. They're mm-hmm. one of the few companies to actually see e-commerce go the in, in the other direction, which right. is really, and, really and scary.
4: And of, off a really small base,
1: right? So well, yeah, normally talking. it's like hey, fifty percent growth, and you are like, oh, that's it, a couple million. But yeah, these guys, <laughs> yeah, I mean, so people are paying for in-store experience with these guys, right? Which is, completely strange in the commerce world yeah
4: if if you look at the chart in my story it's just they got a lot of stuff going on they got a lot of brands a lot of this and then you know you toss in the the broader dynamics of fast fashion and just retail and amazon and blah 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 and then and then you can't get your commerce platform up fast enough i mean it's interesting i mean it's like wow but yeah it seems like a brick hit them over the head and said we got to go faster
0: yeah, you know, to me, it's table sticks for retail. And a projection of 2018 is, uh, you know, you re- ultimately will stand to lose market share to, with, with retailers that have that capability. And, of course, Amazon and others are, you know, crushing it. And uh, right. how, how often do you keep seeing In my Twitter feed, I keep seeing a chart of Amazon market cap as compared to the 10 biggest retailers, including Walmart. And, uh, you know, it's it's uh, it's, it's, it's amazing uh, the, the, the amount of – And we've talked about this with you, Larry, that retailers need to really think about meaningful use of technology to to disrupt and improve the user experience. And I think e-commerce is one element of it. Um, So,
4: but it's kind of table stakes at this point. It is
0: table stakes at this point, no question.
4: And the the Sears hasn't even fallen over yet.
1: Hey now, Larry. What? Where are you? Where are you headed? Like, we're almost smack in the middle of the spring enterprise conference season. Larry doesn't right?
4: want to go anywhere. He doesn't. Want I know to he doesn't
1: anywhere. want to go anywhere. I
4: go, it, I go to soccer tournaments. Yeah, it's as
0: painful as collaboration.
4: I teach. I teach a data science class at Temple. I I am going to San Francisco, but I'm kind of locked into a room for two days on a management offsite. Hence the collaboration remarks and PowerPoint hell. <laughs> um, yeah, so you know I, they don't. I, I get out a little bit, but eh, it's, got, it's tricky.
1: But what are you seeing? What are you seeing trend wise? in mean, all these events that are coming out. What are seeing like storylines? I mean, if we go, if we're going to look back, if if we're sitting in June right now, looking back at the first half of 2017, what do you think the big trends were?
4: I think there'll be a lot of AI and making that more consumable, so to speak. Right now, I don't think it is at all. Um, so we'll see what happens over the next two months to magically fix all that. Um, you'll see a lot of digital transformation customer stuff, and I think we're at the stage. You'll look back in the six months, you'll see a lot of companies implode.
1: Got it. All or right. at
4: least you'll have you'll have zombie companies, right? And and retail's one of them, but th- there'll be others too, right? And I think that's that's probably
1: what we'll see. This is awesome. You heard it here first, Larry Ding, and editor in chief at ZDNet. And you can follow him at L L-D-I-G-N-A-N. Um, thank you for your insights, man. This is awesome. Anytime.
0: No, thank, you. thank you. Thank you, Larry. Thanks. Um, I, I would say Ray may be our best performing cleanup hitter of all time. I'm just putting it out there. In fact, I think he's ready to be a co-host if ever you and I decide to do something else. <laughs> so.
1: I know, maybe, maybe we'll get it syndicated on uh, ZD.TV yeah, yeah, or something oh, like that as well. That. Love
0: that. I know he says he doesn't like collaboration, but he's too good of an interview uh, for me to believe that we wouldn't want to be at, at some point a co-host at Disrupt TV.
1: <laughs> no, no. But hey, we've got a very, very special edition. Actually, April's got some very interesting special guests um, that'll be popping up, but we're gonna start out the second week of April with us, our sports edition. Who do we yeah. have in the lineup here?
0: Yeah, we've got our sports edition, and uh, I think it's a know. New England
1: sports edition. Yeah, but I know, I'm not I sure. know. You <laughs> can tell maybe a slight. We're have to get a West Coast one going here.
0: Yeah. We've got uh, Jason Lumsden, director of IT for the Boston Red Sox, is going to join us. He's an incredible thought leader and is a change agent at the Red Sox. We've got Fred Kirsch, who, again, in my humble opinion, is Vice President of Content at Craft Sports Productions, and that includes the New England Patriots. The first sports website that ever went up was in 1995, and it was Fred, who launched the first sports website in the US. He was the first franchise to launch a mobile app. Uh, and you know, he has been guiding the investment thesis for the Crafts Group, working with you know, organizations like MIT funding startups. And he's just one of the top technologists in sports. And looking forward to having Fred. And then we have uh, Russell Scobetti, Vice President of Product Strategy at Core Software, founding editor at BusinessOfSports.com. So, Jason, Fred, and Russell are going to be incredible, uh, one hour jam packed innovation in sports. And look forward to having you guys join next Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard
1: this is awesome we have a great lineup and as you can tell many of these guests are going to be at the constellation connected enterprise event october 25th to 27th in half moon bay at the ritz carlton that's our annual big conference of innovators and leaders so hey thanks everyone for being on the show this has been a wonderful friday if it's friday it is disrupt tv 11 a.m pacific 2 p.m eastern